0: Today, we're going to look at the end of the book of Nehemiah, chapter 13, verses 15 to 31. Uh, It's a little bit of a long passage, but it is, I think, a great passage, and in particular, maybe for some of us, uh, a passage that uh, we need to hear. Uh, Hear the word of the Lord. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah, in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on the city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Yes, it says he pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there were no king like him, and he was beloved by God, by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son in law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood, offering at appointed times, and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> uh, we were doing a short series on this topic of renewal, and today we're going to wrap up that series. Uh, the next series we're going to do is we're going to look at some of the Psalms and some of the uh, experiences and emotions of the Christian life and how the Psalms help us. But today we're going to look at this final chapter in Nehemiah because what it does is it, it really tells us the end of how this Uh, movement of renewing uh, the people of Israel through rebuilding this temple, how this story ends. And if you were expecting that this story would have ended on a high note or a positive note, then you would be surprised to see that uh, the way it actually ends is the hard work of people like Ezra and Zerubbabel and Joshua and Nehemiah. Uh, The hard work kind of uh, leads to more disobedience from the people of Israel. Uh, This renewal movement, in a sense... has a major setback, and uh, we don't know what happens after this, but we could probably say that this movement of renewal ultimately fails. Now, most Hollywood films, I think, that we usually uh, watch, they typically end with some kind of resolution or some kind of happy ending. Uh, You know, just last night, my wife and I, we watched Hidden Figures, and it's, it's a wonderful movie, it touches the heart, and it's such a wonderful ending. And, you know, it makes you feel like, you know, I'm glad I put my time into this, I'm glad I put my emotions into getting drawn into this story, and because I feel good at the end. Well, you know, if Hollywood was going to make a movie of a particular book in the Bible, Nehemiah would not be the movie that they would make, because it ends on kind of this sour note, this uh, bad note. And I, I think the reason why audiences and Hollywood doesn't make these kind of movies is because... Um, if you watch a movie and if you get drawn into the story and by at the end of the movie, uh, there is no resolution to anything, maybe it leaves more questions than answers. Maybe it leaves you kind of saying oh that's that's a downer, that's a little bit depressing." Then maybe we feel like well what was what was the point of that story? What was the point of me just putting my emotions and being drawn into this story? Did I just waste my time watching this movie because uh, i don't I don't see the point of it and of course, you know. Producers and studios don't want you to feel the audience to feel like they wa- wasted their time, so we don't see many movies like that. But Nehemiah, and actually Ezra and Nehemiah are two books that go together, but Nehemiah, the way it ends is there is no ultimate resolution here. Uh, you don't have the happy ending that you might expect to see in this story, and perhaps it's anticlimactic, and perhaps it's, it's kind of like, why would you end a sermon series on renewal by showing the failure of a renewal movement? But I actually think it's, it's in the disappointment of where this movement ends that we learn some of the greatest lessons. Now, some of you may be, story with the, may be familiar with the story of Nehemiah, but some of you may not. So just in case you're not, basically it's a story of rebuilding the temple walls. And for the people in Jerusalem, the temple was central to their, their spiritual faith, their, their, their worship. And the temple walls were important because it, was, it provided essentially economic life and overall security for the city, for Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah is actually a remarkable story of God's favor and the faithful leadership of a man named Nehemiah. Nehemiah was not clergy. He wasn't a priest. He was a layperson that God used in a powerful way to contribute to this uh, movement to renew the people of Israel. Uh, which also tells us that God doesn't always use clergy. In fact, here, it's the clergy that are the most corrupt. And uh, when you read the book of Malachi, uh, you got to love the prophets, right? Uh, when it talks about these corrupt priests, uh, God says, I'm going to rub dung in their face. <laughs> and the, the dung of these animal sacrifices in their face. It actually says that in the Bible. Uh, but that's how corrupt they were. Uh, Nehemiah was a cupbearer for King Artaxerxes, and a cupbearer was basically the kind of person who would eat and taste the king's food to make sure it wasn't poisoned. So he's he's an important person in the civic government, and uh, God allows God grants Nehemiah favor and allows uh, Nehemiah to be released from that job and from that duty to spend twelve years trying to lead this uh, rebuilding of the temple walls. And during these twelve years, there's just so much opposition that takes place, but In the end, Nehemiah perseveres. The temple walls get built, and by the time you get to chapter 12, things are looking pretty good. They dedicate the temple. People are singing. People are worshiping, and it's kind of the happy ending that you might expect out of, again, a Hollywood movie. But then all of a sudden, you have chapter 13. Where does chapter 13 come from? And chapter 13 ends up becoming this major, major disappointment because things are bad. Nehemiah, he returns to his old job, to King Artaxerxes. He returns to Jerusalem, and he says, what happened? Why are things so messed up? How bad are things? Well, you have Elisha, the priest. He gives uh, a portion of the temple. He gives precious real estate uh, to Tobiah, and Tobiah was an Ammonite. Tobiah was a person who opposed Nehemiah. Tobiah was an enemy of Nehemiah. And the priest just gives him this, I guess, this room or this warehouse that used to hold grain offering and frankincense, things that would be used for worship in the temple. And now Tobiah uses it to store his personal belongings. That's pretty bad. Not only that, the Levites, who were the priests of the temples, they were not being paid. And so what they did is they fled the temples and they went back to their fields. And now you don't have priests doing what they're supposed to be doing in the temples. That's pretty bad. But then you have merchants and sellers, and what they're doing is they're doing business in the temples on the Sabbath day. And that is pretty bad. And what all of this shows is that people have returned to a place where they have forsaken the worship of God and they have allowed the temple to be dis- defiled, and now the temple operations are dysfunctional. Now, that's just the temple, but what about the people? It's pretty bad there, too. There's intermarriage going on with those outside of Israel, which is a clear violation of the covenant. And I know to the modern person that sounds a little xenophobic, uh, but the reason why that was prohibited is because it was to ensure the, uh, the faithful uh, or the purity or the faithful identity of the people of God. And what you have in stories in the Old Testament, which are recalled here, is usually when there's intermarriage, that's when you begin to see the introduction of idolatry. So somebody like King Solomon, which again is mentioned in our passage, his downfall was that he married foreign women. And it's not that he necessarily just married foreign women, but these foreign women introduced idol worship, which ultimately, um, you know, God's judgment upon him led to a divided kingdom and a broken kingdom. Not only that... But the children, they don't even know Hebrew anymore. And the, the reason why that's important is not because they want to necessarily preserve culture. But the reason why that's important is they can't read the word of God anymore. And if you can't read the word of God, then you can't follow it, you can't obey it, and you can't remain faithful. And so now you have this next generation of Israelites. How are they going to be faithful? Their parents aren't even teaching them Hebrew anymore you see, you see how bad things got after Nehemiah left. Things are pretty bad. Temples defile. People are doing what they want rather than what God wants. The worship of God no longer becomes a priority. There's corruption. There's greed. Poor leadership. There's a disregard for God's ways. And if you remember, these are some of the same exact things that led Israel to be exiled in the first place. Now, if you're Nehemiah at that moment, after all, you, you devoted 12 years of your life to this movement of renewal, and now you come back, and you see them, and they're back to their old ways. And so what does Nehemiah do? Well, he gets angry, and he starts pulling people's hair out, right? Now, as you're reading this, uh, just picture Nehemiah and what he's doing. He, he's, right, he's beating people up. He's pulling out their hair. Uh, he's uh, threatening people, saying, if you, come, if you sleep here, I'm going to lay hands on you. And inevitably, I think uh, all of us, we have to ask ourselves, uh, how do we interpret his actions here, Right? How do we interpret Nia's, Maya's actions? Was it good that he was angry? Was it good that he threatened people? Was it good that he did these things? Uh, or, or was it not good? Uh, you know, can you imagine, you know, we have, we have two elders now. We have Peter and Fred. Can you imagine Peter or Fred uh, kind of going around and uh, doing those things, like pulling out your hair and saying, you better not do that, or I'm going to lay hands on you. you. You would see them as a crazy person, right? Uh, That would be pretty old school, and I think everybody would be super shocked and super offended if they did something like that. But I actually think Nehemiah's actions here are meant to reflect his faithfulness, right? It's meant to reflect his faithfulness. Why? You know, in in our um, maybe modern sensibilities, uh, we probably find him offensive because we think love means uh, being nice to people. Uh, We think love means having positive thoughts and positive sentiments, we think love means letting people uh, pursue and get what they want uh, if they think it's going to lead to their own happiness. Uh, we think love is allowing people to have the, the uh, unlimited freedom to, to express themselves however they want to express themselves. And these are distinctly Western values, Western cultural values. And that's why when we see something like this, uh, we say you know, Nehemiah is not being loving because he's not being nice. Right? He's not letting the people do what they want to do. But sometimes I think when we look and try to understand a deeper meaning of what love is, sometimes love requires us to not be nice. And it's very easy. You see examples of that everywhere. If you've ever known an addict, you know sometimes you can't be nice. Sometimes being nice by giving in to an addict and giving them, allowing them to have what they want is ultimately going to cause greater harm. And when you get in the way of what they want... You may also know that you become the object of their scorn and their anger. And sometimes they'll say things like, you don't care about me. You don't really care about me. You don't love me. And I imagine they probably even really believe that at the time. Well, sometimes you got to not be nice. And sometimes you got to get in the way if it's going to lead to destruction. And I think when the Bible talks about things like salvation, it talks about it as uh, freedom because sin is essentially something that enslaves us. We are all addicts and our addiction of choice is sin, is to rebel against God. And if that's the case, then being loving is uh, ultimately to help us to turn away from sin. And I think that's what Nehemiah is trying to do here. He's trying to save them from themselves. Now, I think most parents understand this too. Uh, The worst thing a parent can do is just kind of let their kids do whatever they want. You know, when I was younger, I remember uh, all I wanted to do all the time, was play video games and watch TV. And if it were up to me, uh, I would just play video games and watch cartoons all the time. And I would skip school so that I can do these things. But of course, my parents, they would say, you know, even though you want that, you can't, you can't have that. That's not good for you. And so therefore, they limited the amount of time that I played video games and watch TV. Uh, but just imagine, if, what if my parents said, you know, Sam, I just want you to be able to express yourself. I just want you to be happy, Go at it and do what you want. I would be ruined right now, right? I probably wouldn't be up here, but if I was up here, you know, all my sermon illustrations would probably revolve around video games. (laughs) And I would say, you know, there's this Mario game I played or there's this Counter-Strike game I played. You know, I think Nehemiah understands this ultimately. He knows that Israel, they're in this position. They were exiled in the first place because of all of these corrupt things that they did. Because they disregarded God's ways. Because... They disregarded the worship of God. And he ultimately doesn't want to see them repeat this cycle. But you know, Nehemiah's motivations even goes beyond just that, I think. And there's a phrase in here that's repeated several times, not only in our passage, but in the book of Nehemiah. And the phrase is this. He says, remember me, oh my God. Remember me, oh my God. Now, some people have suggested that uh, this shows that Nehemiah only cared about himself because he's asking God to remember me. But I actually think what Nehemiah is saying here is something that's very beautiful because it shows us something about him. It shows us that he has a single-minded passion to please God. And that's, that's something so simple, yet something uh, maybe we don't always grasp. Everything that he did here, all those 12 years, and then even after those 12 years to kind of start again, all of these things... He did because he wanted to please God. He wants God to remember him. He wants to hear God say, Nehemiah, even though things didn't ultimately work out, even though your work didn't ultimately lead to these results, you were still faithful. Therefore, Nehemiah, well done. Now, why is that an important motivation to have, not just for Nehemiah, but even for some of us? You know, without that kind of motivation, I think there's no perseverance you think about it, if we don't have that motivation, then what's the alternative? The alternative is we do things for self-fulfillment or we do things because we want to achieve a certain level of success. But what if we don't find the work fulfilling? What if we don't see any fruit produced from our labor? Then what happens? Well, then we probably stop trying. You know, trying... It's not it's not an easy thing to do. And I observed that this week in my oldest daughter. You know, we were playing and she wanted to do a puzzle. And she's doing a puzzle and she's like, Daddy, help me. Right. She didn't even start. She just took it out. Daddy, help me. I was like, No, no, no. I want you to try first. I, said, I can't do it. Just try. Just try. She gets two pieces, it doesn't fit. Daddy, help me. I can't do it. I was like, come on, you gotta keep trying. Try other pieces. And uh, this kind of went on over and over again. And uh, I realized this, that trying is, is not the easiest thing to do. Um, but you know what's harder than trying is trying again, right? Trying's frustrating because it's not easy, but trying again is even more frustrating because it means that we're not seeing the results that we hoped to see. But that's why we need to have this kind of, Motivation or this kind of heart that Nehemiah has, where he says, Remember me, oh my God. He's saying, God, I tried. And God, I tried again. And by the end of the book, he's saying, God, I'm, I'm trying. <laughs> I tried again. Remember me for what I have done. You know, uh, have you ever heard of the story, the myth of Sisyphus in Greek, Greek mythology? Uh, his punishment was to push his boulder up a hill, and before he reaches the top of the hill, Uh, he would find himself at the bottom of that hill again, and he would have to push it up again. And it's this unending, meaningless task that he does over and over again. And I wonder if for some of us, maybe the Christian life can feel like that, or just life in general can feel like that. Maybe you feel like you have been fighting the same sins in your life, and uh, maybe when you kind of think you're getting to the top, you just find yourself at the bottom again, and it just gets so frustrating. And eventually you get to a point of saying, why bother trying? Why continue to fight these sins Maybe you're someone who wants to be closer to God, and every time you try to take a step, maybe try to take a step towards church and going to church, you just kind of fall away again. And it's kind of like trying to push that boulder up that hill. And after a couple of times of doing that, you say, what's the point? Why bother trying? Sometimes as a pastor, I I have these thoughts as well. And if you've been serving a long time in the church, maybe you understand what it feels like. You say, you know, I've been doing this for so long, and I've been trying to do this for so long, but hey, people just aren't coming out. People just aren't changing. Uh, People don't seem to be uh, appreciating all the things. People don't seem to be growing. Uh, What's the point? And we struggle, I think, not only with trying, but we probably struggle with trying again and again and again. And if we just want to see some external fruit or if we just want to feel some sort of self-fulfillment, Uh, Eventually, I think we're going to get to a point where we say, what's the point of even trying? Because we might ultimately lose those things, right? For Nehemiah, what was the point? For him, the point was this. Remember me. Oh, my God. That was his point. And so he can spend 12 years rebuilding the temple walls, 12 hard years overcoming a lot of opposition and hardship. And then when he comes back and he sees that everything is ruined and people are returning to sin again and disregarding the covenant again, he can say in verse 30 and 31, I cleanse them from everything foreign, I established the duties of the priest, and I provided the wood offering, which is, I think, another way of him saying, I tried again. You know, I imagine when we look at the kind of person that Nehemiah was and when we look at our lives, there's probably a big gap, Right? we say, Nehemiah was so faithful, so faithful. And we look at our lives and we're like, I am nowhere near like Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah was a man of prayer and a man of action. I tend to make excuses and I tend to give up. You know, when, uh, when we're not at least trying to, trying to follow God, uh, we usually think or say or hear a combination of the following. We say, you know, I'm just too busy, I have no time, I can't find a good enough church, I can't find somebody to mentor me. Yeah, I I know I should, I know, but it's my bad. And I think the implication of that is my lack of trying is either somebody else's fault, or I don't care enough to even try to do anything about it. And that's not Nehemiah, uh, but that's probably where many of us have been or are at various points in our lives but I also want you to think about this. As faithful as Nehemiah was, as faithful as Nehemiah was, he still couldn't bring renewal to the people of God, right? His faithfulness didn't carry over to the people of Israel. He couldn't ultimately be the savior that Israel needed. And that's why Nehemiah 13 is actually not the end of the story, But in the Bible, there's a sequel, and that sequel comes over 500 years later in the person of Jesus Christ. You know the the promise of renewal that God gives to the people of Israel as they're in exile, oftentimes through the prophets? That promise is not fulfilled through people like Ezra and Nehemiah. That promise is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's how renewal ultimately comes. Renewal doesn't come when Nehemiah rebuilt the temple and the temple walls. Renewal comes when Jesus comes and he creates a new temple in the church. Renewal doesn't come when Nehemiah goes in and he starts pulling out hair and tries to cleanse a temple and fix its ways. Renewal comes when Jesus Christ comes in riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and cleanses the, t- the temple there, ultimately leading to a road that would lead to the cross. You know, that, that temple scene that Jesus does, it does remind us of what Nehemiah did, but uh, the purpose that Jesus did that is he's essentially set judging temple religion, and he's essentially abolishing temple religion, and he's saying this, I am going to build the new temple. I am going to build the new temple, and I am going to bring renewal and make all things new. How? Well, in his words, he says, I will destroy this temple in three days and raise it up. In three days, or I will destroy this temple and raise it up in three days. And the temple that he's referring to, of course, is his body. Jesus, he he experiences the ultimate exile so that we would be brought home. Jesus experiences the ultimate wilderness experience so that we might experience this streams of living water flowing through us, filling us, raising us to life. Jesus, he receives the covenant curses for disobedience so that we might be the recipients of covenant blessing. Jesus loses the favor of God so that we might gain it. And as good and as inspiring as Nehemiah was, he still couldn't do it. And as faithful as he was, he still couldn't do it. Jesus came and did it. Now, if Jesus did it, we, uh, I guess, return to the question... jesus brings renewal then why should we try maybe some of us think that right i think we we can we actually have more reason to try and more resources to be faithful than nehemiah did in his time you know if i told my daughter when she was doing the puzzle try try but i'm not going to help you at the end i'm not even going to be with you at the end You're on your own. Keep trying. She might try for a little bit, but just kind of give up out of despair, right? But if I said, try, just keep trying, keep trying, I'm with you. I promise you one day this puzzle will be complete. I think that gives a little bit more strength for her to persevere and to try and try again because she knows that one day that puzzle will be finished and it will be brought to its conclusion, you know Christ came and we know that Christ is ultimately the one that brings renewal and eventually he is going to bring it in its complete form in the new heaven and the new earth we know that he is the one who is going to guarantee that we are going to have new hearts new resurrected bodies new lives because we are going to be part of a new creation there will be no more spiritually dry seasons for us but there will only be joy and peace and flourishing as we dwell fully in the presence of of God we know the puzzle will ultimately be finished and renewal <laughs> will come and therefore we have every reason and every resource to continue to persevere and to try and try again and try again you know I want to end with a, a story and I hope, I hope this story encourages you uh, some of us I think we've been uh, maybe Christians for a long time and I think The temptation is the older we get, the more we kind of want to take a step back. And uh, some of us, maybe we've been at this church for a long time, and the temptation is the longer we've been here, maybe we kind of just want to step back and uh, we don't want to keep trying. Well, let me tell you a story, and I I hope this encourages you. You know, a few months ago I had an opportunity to uh, visit another church, um, not on a Sunday but during the weekend, to meet with a pastor. And this pastor basically told the story of his church. It's a church in New York City. It's uh, called Central Presbyterian Church Church. And I think it's up by maybe 63rd Street or something and park or up around there. Uh, really, really beautiful building. And uh, it's a it's a story of this church being renewed. Now, this, this church has a very long history and a very long tradition, a very beautiful building. But uh, over time, you know, at one time it was flourishing with like, I think thousands of people in New York City. But over the course of the years, it dwindled down and it came to a point where there was about maybe 10 to 15 people in the church. And they had... Uh, they had many millions and millions and millions of dollars in endowment and as the church shrunk and as they had to continue paying their bills which were a lot because it was a big church building uh, they just kept drawing from their endowment and eventually they got to a point where they couldn't pay their electric bills anymore and so uh, i think it was like threatened to be shut down maybe they would have to they sold they owned a lot of properties that they had to sell off well, uh, around that time, there was a group of Christians who lived in that neighborhood, and they would walk by this, this church building and they 'd say, "Wow, this is such a beautiful church building it 's a shame that uh, this this church is dying spiritually and so they decided we 're going to commit to this church and let 's try to uh, bring some renewal to this church and So this group of people they, they came in they joined the church, and at the time, the preacher uh, was most likely not even a Christian, uh, probably at best a Unitarian and didn't teach anything distinctively Christian, uh, didn't preach the gospel or anything like that. And uh, these believers, they believed in the gospel, and uh, eventually they said, hey, let's bring in a pastor who uh, preaches the gospel. So they called this guy who's the pastor there now, and they said, hey, will you come to our church and consider uh, leading us, and consider preaching the gospel, and consider trying to bring some renewal to this church. And uh, you know what he said? He said, no chance, right? There's no way I'm going to walk into a situation like this. Uh, Because it was a hard situation. There was so many hurdles just to even get him hired and to even get him started and get him into the church building. he's like, I I just see so many things that are uh, in the way, and uh, there's no way I'm going to come here. But he said, but you know what? I'll pray about it. I'll pray about it. Uh, Some time passed, he prays about it, and uh, he reconnects with them, and he begins to sense, you know, it does feel like God is starting something here, and God is uh, doing something. Uh, Let me continue to pray about it. And he just got more and more open to it, and then he said, uh, all right, you know, if God makes a way for me to come here and just opens these doors and overcomes these obstacles that are in the way, all right, then maybe I'll come here because maybe this is something that God wants. And God just kept doing it, and overcoming obstacles till the point where eventually, he became the pastor of that church. Now the reason why uh, a bunch of pastors wanted to meet him is because uh, you know many churches, of course, struggle, uh, especially in these days and these times, especially in the West. And uh, you have a bunch of pastors, and there's, they want to come to him and say, "How did you do it? Right? How did you bring renewal to the church?" And by the way, this church now I think has several hundred people. Uh, it's doing pretty well. And they're like, hey, how did you, what did you do, right? We want to do the same thing. What did you do? And I loved his answer because he said this, uh, honestly, all I did was I tried to preach the gospel, I tried to teach the word of God faithfully, and I tried to pray and disciple people as faithfully as I could. That was his answer. <laughs> and they're like, okay, okay, but what else did you do, right? And he's like, look, I know you think I did something special, and I know I'm going to get the credit for it because I'm the pastor, but I'm seriously telling you, I didn't do it. Uh, This was something that God had begun already, and in a sense, I'm just kind of a cog in the wheel of what God was doing to this church. And he brought me here. He brought me here to teach and to preach, but ultimately God was the one who filled life into this church again. If anything, he would say, I just feel privileged that I could be along for the ride. And I think some people were disappointed because uh, most people are looking for, like, uh, tools, right? Things that I need to do to uh, make a flourishing church. But I think he's right. I think that's the way God does work. I think that's the way God does bring renewal. And there is a spiritual element that goes beyond our simple gifts and our abilities and things that we do. But it's the spirit of God at work that moves and brings revival, not only to a church, but even to our personal lives. Not only to our personal lives, but even to a city like New York City. God does it. Now that, of course, is not going to happen for every situation in every church But here's the thing, the power of the gospel and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ at least makes that a very real possibility, no matter how deathly the circumstances. You get that? The power of the gospel and the coming of Jesus Christ makes that at least a very realistic possibility, no matter how deathly the circumstances Because Jesus was raised to life from death. Because Jesus raises us from life to death. Why wouldn't he be able to raise a church from life or from death to life? Why wouldn't he be able to bring renewal to a city like New York City and raise people in a community and a city from death to life? Isn't that what the gospel shows us? That that power resides in God himself. Isn't that what Jesus shows us through his death and his resurrection? So here's the encouragement. Wherever you are, maybe you're coming back to church for the first time, try again. Just try again. Keep trying. Maybe you've been a believer for a long time, and maybe you feel a little bit stale. Pursue God and try again. If you're somebody serving, and maybe you feel like, ugh, I've been doing this for a long time and I'm not seeing what I want to see. Try again. And as we do it, pray to the Spirit of God to breathe life into not only this body, not only into our hearts, but into the very neighborhoods that we inhabit and dwell. And in Christ, it is a realistic possibility. Let's pray together.